Well, good morning. It's good to see you again. It's been a couple of weeks. This morning, we're going to be uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up to there. While you do that, I want to tell you a little bit about a man named William Wilberforce. He was a politician in England in the 1700s, in the 1800s. And it was actually in 1780 that his political career began. And he was able to work himself into a parliament seat from his hometown area of Yorkshire. But in 1784, he went with his, uh, some members of his family on a tour of Europe. And it was during that tour of Europe where he actually had his life transformed by hearing of the gospel. And he placed his faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sin. And from that point forward, his, his life literally changed entirely. His eternity changed by having his sins forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ, but the course of his political career took a drastic change as well. And actually, it was shortly after that trip, he began reaching out to some friends and mentors asking if his new faith in Christ meant that he should abandon his political career because he thought that they were in conflict with one another. But those mentors and friends that he reached out to actually told him that instead of stepping away from that political career, he should use it as a platform with which he could spread uh, not just the gospel, but also work for kingdom-minded things throughout Britain. And so that's what he decided to do. And it was actually two particular causes that really captured his heart. Wilberforce became convinced that the rest of his political career should be established on political platforms and positions that were informed and founded upon a desire to promote Christian principles and ethics all throughout the British Empire. And the two that really bubbled to the surface for him, that he identified as issues that the Lord would hate and that he should give his life toward eradicating were the slave trade and the practice of slavery throughout the British Empire. The slave trade in the late 1700s was responsible for over 80% of Great Britain's uh, foreign revenue that it made. How it worked was that ships would leave from England and they would travel down to Africa full of British goods and they would sell those goods there and empty out the ship and then they would refill that ship with African men and women and transport them to the West Indies where they would be sold into slavery. And While their ship was in the West Indies, they would fill it with goods uh, from the West Indies that they would take back to England and then sell. 80% of Britain's foreign income came from that. This is an incredibly lucrative practice for the British Empire. And so Wilberforce decided that that was going to be the first issue that he took on. And after a little over 20 years worth of work, in 1807, British Parliament passed a law that said that uh, the slave trade was going to be eradicated all throughout Great Britain. It was one of the triumphs of William Wilberforce's career up to that point, but he decided that he wasn't finished yet because He didn't feel like he could actually rest until slavery itself was gone throughout the British Empire. And so he gave the rest of his life toward that cause. And three days before he passed away, the British Parliament introduced the Slavery Abolition Act bill. And then about a month after he passed away, it passed in Parliament. And the institution of slavery was ended all throughout the British Empire. I say all of that to say this, that there was a moment in William Wilberforce's life where he realized the truth of the gospel. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and he changed the 
tra- tra- the trajectory of his life to being one in which he was going to allow himself to be led by the Holy Spirit. And the things that he saw to be true in Scripture, the things that he knew for a fact broke the Lord's heart, he was going to take up championing those causes as led by the Spirit. And God used an ordinary man to do something extraordinary. The same is still true today, that God can, I would go one step further and say that God delights in using ordinary people to do extraordinary work according to his unstoppable will. If you're joining us this morning, maybe for the first time, or it's, it's been a little while since you've been here, or maybe you've come over the past couple of weeks, we're in the middle of something here in 2017 that we're calling the Bible Initiative. We're reading the large narrative portion of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation over the course of 2017. And we're teaching alongside it. There are these little blue books you can get out there if you want to start reading with us. We're doing this as a church, and this week, uh, starting tomorrow, our readings are going to be the beginning portion of the life of David, and we're going to spend two weeks looking at King David in the Old Testament. This week, we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 16 through the end of 1 Samuel, which is chapter 31, and next week, we're going to continue with David's life in 2 Samuel. And contained within this week's reading is maybe David's most uh, famous, in a positive sense, life occurrence, and that's his little showdown with a giant Philistine man named Goliath. But what this week's reading entails in a, a bigger sense is that Saul, who Randy Binkley taught about last week, has the kingdom removed from him. He's been king, he's disobedient to the Lord, and Samuel informs him that the Lord has told Samuel that Saul is no longer going to be king, but instead that God has found a man after his own heart who's going to lead the Israelite people. And in chapter 16, David is anointed as king. And then in chapter 17 is the story of David and Goliath. Most people here, uh, regardless of how familiar you may or may not be with church, are probably at least familiar with the broad details of the story of David and Goliath, that David is a regular-sized individual, and Goliath is like nine feet tall, and David ends up killing Goliath. There's a little bit more to the story than that. So I want to recap it for you. David is the youngest of all of the sons of a man named Jesse. Jesse's oldest three sons are out fighting with Saul in the army, who happened to be uh, engaged in a, a bit of a battle, a war with these Philistine people. And so how this works at this particular moment is that there's this valley, and on one side of the valley are the Philistines, and on the other side of the valley are the Israelite people. And rather than just rushing into battle kind of full scale against one another, there's this individual Philistine soldier named Goliath who is stepping out a couple of times a day and he's taunting the Israelite people and saying, why don't you just send one man out here and we will fight. And the winner of that fight will be the side that wins this entire battle. And the Israelite people are scared. And so David is sent by his father Jesse to take some supplies to his oldest three brothers who are there at this uh, standoff, if you will. And he arrives and he sees Goliath do this. He sees Goliath come forward and taunt the Israelite people, and it makes him indignant. In fact, he's really upset about it. His words are that, how dare anyone allow this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? That's what David shows up and says. And David's brothers give him kind of a hard time, and at the end of that, David says, you know what, I'll fight him. And everybody views that as rather impossible because Goliath is nine feet tall, David is a shepherd, and so they're like, well, why don't you go talk to the king? And so David goes and he talks to Saul, King Saul, who should be the one that steps out 
and fights Goliath. And David announces that he, he will go and fight this Philistine individual. And Saul, looking at David, who's rather small, offers him his armor because at least then maybe he'll take uh, Goliath two swings of a sword in order to kill him or something. And David tries on the armor and he moves around in it a little bit and it's, it's awkward and weird for him. And he says, you know what, I'm not used to wearing this, so I'm not going to take it. But he's very confident that just as God has delivered him from lions and bears as he's been protecting the sheep out in the wilderness, that God will deliver this Philistine into his hands. And so he goes down to a creek bed and he grabs five smooth stones and he takes them in a sling. And this is the part of the story that you probably know. They start running at each other, but before they actually get close enough to engage in hand-to-hand combat, David takes one stone, slings it, hits Goliath between the eyes, and Goliath falls down. Uh, Not dead yet, because... Uh, David actually grabs the sword and cuts off Goliath's head, and that's when Goliath actually dies. He hits the ground like a sack of potatoes, and it's pretty much over at that point. And what we find out next is that the Philistine army is thrown into confusion, and they can't believe what's just happened, and they begin to retreat, and the Israelite army chases after them. And we're told, it's 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, that the Lord gave Israel a great victory that day. And that's the story of David and Goliath. What David provides for us is this incredible type of Jesus. We've talked about this as we've gone along, that a type of Christ is an Old Testament figure who serves as this shadow or pre, uh, pre-figuring individual that points us to Jesus Christ. In fact, David is maybe the Old Testament's greatest type of Christ. We've mentioned this, and I don't want to become like a broken record, but as you're reading the Old Testament, look for Jesus in there. Everything in the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, anticipates or points to this Messiah or Savior who's eventually going to come and give ultimate fulfillment to the promise that God made to Abraham, and he's going to redeem humanity from their sin. Well, God uses David here in order to save and lead his people. David was God's chosen instrument to save and lead God's people, and he does that for a time. He does it for actually 40 years. But what he points to is the fact that Jesus is God's chosen instrument to ultimately save and lead his people. Jesus is not just God's chosen instrument. He's his necessary, his sufficient, his eternal instrument to save and lead God's people. That What we see in David walking out and slaying Israel's enemy is this minute shadow of what Jesus would do in slaying our enemy of sin. That the Israelites stand there and they're afraid and they're kind of overwhelmed by the size of their enemy. There's nothing they can do about it and yet God brings someone along who can do it on their behalf. And the same is true for us in our sin, that there's nothing we can do about it. The problem is bigger than us. We cannot save ourselves, but God has sent someone to take care of that problem for us. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross that by faith in him, we might have forgiveness from our sin. David points us to Christ. He's this beautiful type of Christ. But David also serves as an incredible model for us. Randy, last week when talking about Saul, said that we can learn a lot from a bad example. You can learn a lot about what not to do from a person who does a whole lot of stuff wrong, but you can also learn a lot from someone who does things right. They don't have to be perfect, but they just do things well. If you think about your parents, your parents 
probably weren't perfect, but they did a lot of things well, and you can learn a ton from them. I've learned a ton from my mom and my dad who aren't perfect, but they do much well. And the same is the case with David. He's not a perfect picture of faithfulness to the Lord. In fact, he has some major failings that we're going to look at next week. But there are a few things we can take out of the life of David that show us what it's like to live a faithful life as a follower of Christ, as someone who believes in and wants to be obedient to the Lord. And here's the first of those. The first is that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And I've said that before. But what the Lord is most concerned with is the heart of an individual. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 14 Samuel arrives before Saul and tells him that he's no longer going to be king. This is what he says. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. And we're told this about Saul, that he has turned his back from following me. That's the Lord. And has not performed my commandments. That man after God's own heart is David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16... One of the primary things we learn about David is that the Lord is looking for the heart of an individual, not an outward appearance or not even external behavior. And so Samuel arrives at the home of a man named Jesse. This is the beginning of 1 Samuel 16. And Jesse's got a number of sons. Samuel's been told to go there because that's where the next king of Israel is. And so Jesse begins to parade his sons in front of Samuel. And they look the part of a king, much like Saul did. We were told that Saul was like a head taller than everyone else, and he was handsome, and he was strong. He looked like a king. And so some of David's oldest brothers begin to walk in front of Samuel and Jesse, and Samuel thinks to himself, this has got to be the Lord's anointed, the next king of Israel. But God tells Samuel this. This is verse 7, 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance, Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. This is David's older brother. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus would come and teach the exact same thing. In fact, in a confrontation with the Pharisees, he would say, it's not the outside of a bowl that makes it dirty or clean. It's the inside of a dish that makes it dirty or clean. What the Lord is primarily concerned with is your heart. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, your heart should be consumed by a love and passion for the one who has saved you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then you've been given a heart that's free from the penalty and the consequences of your sin. Your heart is clean. It's been made white. It's been made righteous and holy by the work of Christ on your behalf. But the second truth is this, that a saved heart is a sanctified heart. God saves us right where we are. All of your sin, all your junk, all of your brokenness, none of it's too big for him or too intimidating for him. It cannot disqualify you from his love or outpace the redeeming work of his son on the cross for you. But God doesn't want to leave you in that spot. David gets anointed literally after stepping out of the field from leading a flock of sheep. But that's not where he stays. God wants something more for him. He's going to become king. He can't become king if he goes back and just hangs out with the sheep for a while longer. You see, we get saved right in the midst of our sin, but that's not where God wants to leave us. He wants you to be able to walk through 
your sin and into a life of increased obedience to him. When you take Jesus as your Savior, you also get Jesus as your Lord. And the things that he commands and the things that he desires for your life ought to become the desires of your own heart. A sanctified, or a saved heart is also a sanctified heart. Here's the next one. The Christian life is a Holy Spirit-led life. As you read this week over the back half of 1 Samuel, you're going to see that the Spirit rushes in to David. This is what we're told in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. That's David. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel, or I'm sorry, David gets described to Saul a few verses later in 1 Samuel 16, verse 18. And one of Saul's men describes David this way. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David, and the rest of his life is an attempt to live as faithfully obedient to that Spirit as he possibly can. He's not perfect but he does the best job he can to walk faithfully where the Spirit has called him. What marks David is not merely his accomplishments or his titles, but his humble willingness to be led by the Lord in all situations. He is a man after God's heart. And he allows himself to be led by the Spirit. He allows himself to be obedient. And ultimately, what we get to see in the life of David is the same thing we saw in the life of William Wilberforce. It's that God can use ordinary people to do extraordinary work according to his unstoppable will. A shepherd from Judah. An ordinary man. A politician from Yorkshire that God uses to do something extraordinary. There are all sorts of issues in our world today. There's broken systems and processes and organizations that the Lord looks on and they break his heart. And he wants to use ordinary people, obedient to the calling of their life that the Spirit brings to them in order to work to bring kingdom realities into our world today. And he may want to use you to help align those broken systems with his heart and to glorify him and to make him known in the process. And God has used faithful individuals from this church to do some amazing work in our community, in the larger Kansas City area, but also in our world globally. One of the individuals that we talk about frequently is Carol Graham. She was a member of this church. And she saw that there was something in our world that broke the Lord's heart. And that was the reality that abortion exists. And so she felt the Holy Spirit call her to do something about that. And she founded and set up a crisis pregnancy center here in Liberty that offers abortion alternatives. And that has changed the lives of thousands of people in this community. All because... She was willing to be obedient to the calling of the Holy Spirit. Carol would be the first one to tell you that she's a very ordinary individual that the Lord has used to do something extraordinary. Our Western Asia and uh, Japan missions teams, the folks that uh, go with us to go down to Haiti, they're ordinary individuals that the Lord uses to do extraordinary work. Oftentimes the problems, the brokenness in our world seem like they're very, very large. Like a 
nine-foot giant, if you will. But God delights to use regular individuals who are motivated by the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, to do extraordinary things for the sake of his unstoppable will. And there's an organization that we partnered with last year that we're going to partner with again this year. And for them, particularly for one man who's with us here this morning, he identified something in the world that broke the Lord's heart. It's the fact that there are millions of people around the world, millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have access to clean water. They may have to walk miles on end every day just to retrieve water that's dirty and ultimately is going to make them sick. And seeing that and knowing that, the Spirit prompted Michael Chitwood to do something about it. So I want to invite Michael to come up, and he's going to share a little bit more about his story and about the way God has been using ordinary people since that day in 2006 uh, to do something extraordinary in our world. Thanks so much, Tim. So good to be here with you all today. You know... Um, I've come to believe that God does not typically shape our faith during times of ease and comfort, but rather through, through times of pain and heartache and suffering. I grew up with a pretty easy life, to be honest. So I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is about as much in a bubble as you can get. It's a pretty safe place to grow up. I had two parents that loved me, two older brothers that were my heroes, went to one of the best schools in the state of Michigan, had a great group of friends. Uh, life was pretty easy for me. In Grand Rapids, you can start playing football, full contact, in second grade. And I played second grade through college, where I played defensive end. And I was a lot bigger guy back then. When I finished college football, I swore off two things, morning workouts and running. I absolutely hated running. Well, right after college, I became a fifth grade teacher in Kankakee, Illinois, in a community very different from the one I grew up in. In fact, the first homeless person I ever met in my life was a 10-year-old girl in the class that I taught. It was after my second year teaching that my dad invited me to go to Haiti with him on a mission trip to train teachers there. I'll never forget the first two words I learned in Haitian Creole. Mwe grangu. Mwe grangu. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Young kids would run alongside the vehicles and say those words. And Now, I'd seen poverty where I was teaching, but I'd never seen anything like this. It absolutely destroyed me. And I actually came back from Haiti with an application to be a teacher there. But I was getting married the next year, and everyone that we told we were thinking about moving to Haiti as newlyweds told us it was a terrible idea, that it wasn't safe. So despite a deep sensing that I was supposed to do something to help those kids, I froze, I chickened out, and I let fear get the best of me. Instead, I took a full-time job in youth ministry with Youth for Christ, and To be honest, my time at Youth for Christ was amazing, but I knew deep in my spirit I had ignored a whisper from God to help those kids. Well, it was uh, during my first year of ministry at Youth for Christ that my world got wrecked. I came home from a youth ministry meeting one night and got a phone call that my dad had passed away. He went in for what was supposed to be a routine shoulder surgery and slipped into a coma and died three days later. It absolutely destroyed my faith. I was in my first year of full-time ministry, first year of marriage. I was 25 years old. I could barely even bring myself to talk to God. It was two years later, almost to the day, I got another phone call that would change my life. It was one of my high school football buddies, Mark Smith. He was calling to tell me that he was going to run the Chicago Marathon and wanted to know if I would come up and watch him run. Notice he did not ask me to run with him. I had taken that commitment to no more running very seriously, By this time, I weighed about 265 pounds, and I couldn't run around the block. 
But I heard a whisper that I know was the Holy Spirit, and it was just two words. Do this. So I hung up the phone, told my wife, I'm going to run the Chicago Marathon. And luckily, she didn't laugh at me. She just encouraged me that I could do it. Now, I was, so, I was slow. I was slower than you can imagine someone running. I was so slow, I'd be out training in, in Champaign, Illinois, and my friends would see me, and they'd say, hey, Chitwood, I thought you were training to run that marathon. And I'd say, I am. Thanks for asking. And they'd say, oh, I keep seeing you walking all over town all the time. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty bad. But something amazing happened out on those long, slow runs. I started talking to God again. And he began to heal my heart and restore my faith. And I realized that often there's very little we can do about our own pain and heartache, but there is almost always something we can do to help relieve the pain of others. Well, on October 15, 2003, I towed the starting line of my first race ever, the Chicago Marathon. The energy was electric. One big problem, Mark and I had not discussed a race strategy. He had trained to run nine minutes per mile, and I had trained just to finish before they shut the thing down. <laughs> so we decided we'd split the difference. That was a terrible idea. About three miles into the race, I see a guy running on a prosthetic leg, and I'm like, come on, buddy, you can do this. I run in a marathon on one leg. About mile 12, the wheels come off. I have to walk pretty much the whole back half of that marathon. About mile 20, I hear someone yell to me, come on, buddy, you can do this. You got one guess who it was. Yeah, it's the guy on the prosthetic leg running right past me. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, never got a laugh quite that loud from that. <laughs> um, that race destroyed me. It was terrible. It was awful. It was so much harder than I ever thought it could be. And it absolutely changed my life physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And I decided that day I would do a race like that every year for the rest of my life. So when I heard about the Ironman triathlon, I knew I had to do it. Ironman is a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, followed by a marathon. When I signed up, I didn't own a bike, and I didn't know how to swim. <laughs> right? But I had seen what fear can do to you. Fear kept me from moving to Haiti. Fear almost made me quit training for my first marathon. In fact, I've come to believe that almost every amazing thing that God has for us in this life is on the other side of fear. And we have to step through fear to get to it. I have a hard time believing that David was not afraid. I have a hard time believing that he was just so confident there's nothing could go wrong here. That it didn't require him stepping through fear. Well, during the training for that Ironman, I was on a bike ride one day when God gave me a vision that we could invite people to do these races and help kids on the other side of the world who don't have the basic necessities of life, like clean water. So I approached World Vision, and in 2006, we started Team World Vision as a way to invite people, ordinary people, people who had never thought of running a marathon or half marathon, to step through fear, take on that challenge, and ask their friends to help take on this giant of the global water crisis. The global water crisis is the number one preventable cause of death on planet Earth. And we know how to solve it. More people die from lack of access to safe water than all the violence and wars on the planet put together. And we can solve it in our lifetime. Well, since we started Team World Vision, we've had 30,000 people 
take on marathons and half marathons and raise over $30 million for clean water projects. People just like you, people who thought, no way, I could never do that. I ran yesterday in Chicago with a guy named Alva. He's 71 years old. He ran his first marathon at 69 with Team World Vision. He's taking on five marathons this year. He hadn't run in 40 years when he signed up. You do not need to be a runner to join this team. You just have to be willing to say yes to something unbelievable that God could do in your life. You can probably see where I'm going with this. Last year, a group of folks from this church raised close to $100,000 to help provide clean water, life-saving clean water, to kids on the other side of the world. I can promise you, if you will step through fear and consider taking on this challenge, God can do something amazing in your life, something that I can't even imagine. It could be a restoration of your faith. It could be a restoration of a relationship in your life or something that I can't even think of right now. But I will promise you, if you step through fear and do this with us, it will change your life, and even more importantly, it will change the lives of kids on the other side of the world who just want a shot to realize their God-given potential and live life in all its fullness. In just a minute, we're going to share a little video with you. I want to acknowledge something before I do that. That this is very scary to even consider doing something like this. Some of you, just the thought of it has got butterflies in your stomach. Because maybe you're feeling that tug on your heart or hearing a whisper from God. You're supposed to do this. And you're thinking, no way, God. There is no way I can do this. If I even tell my spouse or the person next to me I'm thinking about going to that meeting after church, they're going to laugh at me. There's no way I can do this. You can I'm telling you, you can do this. We can get you from never running in your life to the finish line. And it will be one of the most amazing, life-changing experiences you've ever had. But here's the other thing. Right now, there's a little girl in East Africa just getting back from an all-day search for water. She's got a jerry can that weighs 30 or 40 pounds, and she's been carrying that water dirty water, water that could make her sick or take her life. And today, you have the opportunity to say yes to something that can change her community and change her world forever. After service, we're going to have a short information meeting in the other room. As you watch this video, I just want you to pray and listen. Is God tugging at your heart and saying, do this? Thanks for having me. In 2006, one man heard a divine whisper that he could help the most vulnerable kids in the world by running marathons. So he said yes. He felt God ask him to invite others into the same vision, so he did. Many people felt scared of the unknown. Fear prevailed, and they said no. But many people pushed through that fear, and they said yes. The first year, 100 people said yes. The next year, 400 said yes then 1,000, then 2,000. As people said yes to new challenges and to changing the lives of kids and communities in Africa, their own lives started to change in drastic ways. I started this year, this is my first year. I have only been out of a wheelchair for two years now. In the beginning I was like, "Mm, my knees, I got too much weight, Mm, hold on. 
but I stuck with it. And I just went all in. I thought, I'm 55, why not? Bev did it at 60, I'll do it at 55. <laughs> this has really brought me back, helped me recommit my life to the Lord, but uh, also to those less fortunate. And plus the goal of like bringing clean water, that, like that's beautiful. So I was like, this is something I really want to do. We really did a lot of training, just the two of us. And it was just such a bonding moment of yeah. that, that time when you, your, your strength is faltering and the person next to you carries you through it. Well, I've lost 75 pounds through this. And I couldn't imagine my seven-year-old having to go run and get water for our family. So that keeps me motivated and focused. I plan on running a marathon every single year until I die. Whoa! We'll see how that happens or how that goes. Over the last 10 years, over 25,000 people have joined Team World Vision and they just keep saying that magic word, yes. Every one of those yeses also represents kids in Africa who get to say yes to life, yes to health, yes to an education, yes to hope. Hundreds of thousands of kids. Every movement, every revival, every revolution in the history of mankind has begun because someone said yes. They are yes people. We are yes people. You are one too. As long as there are children in this world without clean water, we will continue saying yes. I asked, I asked Michael this during first service. I'll ask it again. Michael, would you consider yourself an ordinary person? Absolutely. And one day, the Holy Spirit sp spoke to Michael. And he said yes to that. And it was obedient to where the Holy Spirit was leading him. And because of that, $30 million have been raised for clean water globally. That's 30,000 people or so who have taken up this challenge to run and raise money. In fact, about 100 of us here did this last year and raised about $100,000. And our coordinator, Eric Bayer, got to go uh, to Africa last year and actually see the implementation of one of these water uh, systems in a community, and I asked Eric last service, Eric, would you consider yourself an, an ordinary person? And he goes, yes. <laughs> and then I said, I said, would you consider what you saw something extraordinary? And he said, absolutely. There are opportunities uh, all throughout our world and our community that there's a chance for believers to engage in something that would take a broken system or a broken thing that is saddening to the Lord and bring kingdom reality to that thing. This could be one of those for you. You might be sitting here this morning and maybe over some time have felt the Lord calling you to something a little bit different. My encouragement this morning is just this. Be obedient. If you have a heart that's been transformed by faith in Jesus Christ and you're allowing yourself to be conformed daily into his image, then you are to lead a Holy Spirit-led life. And that when we say yes to those types of things, God can and he delights in using ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his cause and according to his unstoppable will in the world. So here's how this is going to look. There's going to be a meeting that takes place in the MPA back here. There's some chairs set up. If you're interested in gaining more information or you're sitting here right now and you say, I absolutely know for a fact that I want to do that, then I want to invite you to go back right after the service. It'll be 10, 12 minutes long. We can get some more information. Uh, I also want to encourage you that when we start being obedient, it becomes easier to be obedient. We learn that. And so doing something like this, which is small but feels pretty large, 
could encourage you, it could change your life and lead you into a greater uh, area of obedience to something the Lord might call you to in the future. So I'm going to pray for us. You can go out into the MPA if you're interested and meet with Michael and with Eric and with Denise, wherever Denise went. There she is. Um, And they'll walk you through what it looks like uh, to join this team and to take up this cause of running for clean water. So let's pray together and then we'll be done. God, thank you for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to come and to worship you, to spend time as a church family together, just glorifying you and your son and talking and thinking about the gospel, allowing our hearts to be continually transformed by the reality of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for us. Lord, my prayer is that we would be a church of obedient people. Lord, who are receptive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and who are willing, maybe no matter how ridiculous it sounds in the moment, to say yes to what the Holy Spirit is doing. God, we're a church full of people that you have used to do some remarkable things in the past, both inside this church and far, far beyond it, Lord. And my prayer for us as a body is that we would continue to be a church that allows you to call us, to lead us into areas that are unknown to us in this moment, areas that might be scary or or fear-inducing for us in the moment. God, but by our obedience, would we be able to see you do amazing things in your world for your sake? God, stir in our hearts. Call us to what it looks like to be obedient both this morning and tomorrow and weeks down the road from now, Lord. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.